0: Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit authenticate.com. That's authentic with the number eight.com.
1: You sure people will tell you or, or machines will tell you something much quicker than a, a person can. But there's the ability of a human brain to really contextualize something. Um, Attribute pieces that maybe, you know, just aren't in the data stack. And, and that's, that's going to be a high risk to take that, that element out.
2: Welcome to Needle Stack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm Jeff Phillips, your host. Joining me as co-host today is Tom Kay. Now, Tom's a program manager at Authenticate with more than 25 years of geospatial experience. Thanks for being here and being a co-host, Tom. Hello, Jeff. And also joining both Tom and I is Mark Knapp. Mark is the CEO of TerraCover, and Mark joins us today to discuss all things GeoInt. Mark, welcome to the show for you also. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. All right, I'm, I'm excited to uh, uh, for today's session with, with both of you. Let's let's start at the at the, the at the top, if you will, or, or with the basics, um, Mark, and then Tom. If you want to chime in also, can you tell us what is GeoInt for some of our um, for some of our listeners that may not know, and and how does it differ from other intelligence disciplines?
1: Yeah, great question, Jeff. Uh, Geospatial intelligence, or GeoInt, for short. There are many different ways to define it. Um, there's been books written about it. I like to just break it down and make it as simple as possible. Geospatial intelligence is any information that can either be spatially referenced somewhere on the planet um, or time referenced somewhere on the planet. And when you have the combination of the two, then you're, you're talking about something really powerful. And if you're thinking of geoint relative to other sources of information or ints, um, again, this is electromagnetic spectrum, you know, visual, uh, a lot of radio frequency pieces, and also bands of light that we can't see, but a lot of sensors can. Um, that can be distinct uh, relative to other things like human intelligence and signals intelligence, which certainly operate in different domains.
0: And Mark, would you say that your specialty is more focused on imment, which is essentially a sub-discipline of GEOINT?
1: Uh, yeah, I would like to think that I've, I've learned how to interpret these sensors, kind of push them as far as you can. Um, but taking a step back, I really like to consider myself you know, a space junkie, someone who looks at the whole threshold of what's going on from spacecraft manufacture, launch communications, and then finally you have a sensor with data that's coming down to earth and making sense of that data, that the imagery piece is something I, I certainly pride
0: myself in. So, uh, Jeff, I don't know if you knew this, but Mark and I, we we go back many years and we used to work on several programs together. One of the coolest programs that we worked on together was for a a national security customer to monitor world events. And I remember, I don't the exact date escapes me, but it was when the Turkey uh, presidential election was going on. I believe it was Erdogan was reelected and there was a lot of protests. Uh, I was tasked with monitoring that event, and I captured a lot of social media for that event. And we noticed a lot of protests going on. And with most uh, things that happen uh, within the uh, within that realm, you have to corroborate events. And we were unable to corroborate this event from um, from the social media that we captured. But Mark came up with this real ingenious way of making sure that uh that we could prove that this protest was actually happening and mark could you please uh expand upon that particular event
1: well we're certainly taking a stroll down memory lane there tom uh but it was it was an interesting time um that national security partner was keen to understand what was going on and using open sources of information to, to figure out those answers you had clued into some really, I think, impactful uh, messages that, that we saw in the social media world, and we wanted to kind of verify or at least, you know, corroborate with another source. And one of those sources that we we thought would be at our disposal was Earth observation or satellite imagery. Um, and so we we looked at what had been available over that that area of interest uh, recently, and unfortunately, at the the time stamps that we had on that the the social media feeds we didn't have directly correlating imagery. The coverage wasn't there, Mm -hmm. but we did have imagery before and after the event, to the alleged event took place. So that's something that, you know, when you compare those two images, two different, you know, points of time, you can do change detection. Um, In the the regular, you know, spectrum of light, like what we see visually, there wasn't anything all that unusual. Uh, I think it was like a park area that we were looking at. Um, but so we started to, to look elsewhere in the electromagnetic spectrum and specifically the near-infrared band mm-hmm. and then doing an index based off of that, which is <clears throat> uh, normalized difference veg- vegetation index or NDVI for short. And you basically are looking at the chlorophyll or at least the health of, of vegetation uh, with that near-infrared band. And so... <clears throat> We saw a before image we saw an after image and when we did the the comparison ndvi there was a a real degradation in in the grass in this park and so you know we thought well that that kind of adds up i mean if you have thousands of people uh present here walking back and forth that's probably going to hurt the grass but you know we we can't just say with this standalone comparison of 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 one site that that's what happened um it's empirical we know that that the vegetation is less healthy after than it was before. So we actually picked some other control points, you know, a handful of kilometers away. Uh, also open park lands where there was, you know, grass and vegetation present. We looked at the before and after, and there wasn't a major uh, <clears throat> change, I guess, in the health of those those areas, their vegetation anyways. And that then created the anomaly at that park. And um, again, being able to corroborate that back to the social media that, that you had identified, we suddenly had more context. We had a, a story that we could tell.
0: Yeah, that was a really great memory. I think it was, uh, if I can recall, it was it was Periscope. I don't even know if Periscope's around anymore. I think they were like part of Twitter. People used to make live videos on Periscope. But yeah, that's a great memory. It was good stuff.
2: Well, for someone like me, when I think of, G- Mark, you were talking about a lot of different technologies that, that make up geospatial intelligence and and that whole space I, I mean i think of again i think of satellites i think of pictures um to think of something like you just discussed which is able to tell differences in chloroform like that i didn't know that technology existed um and can chlorophyll that. chlorophyll not chloroform good lord i shouldn't <laughs> give anyone chloroform don't want to get canceled. Cool. No, no, yeah. chlorophyll. But that was even a technology, you know that 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 that's available.
1: Yeah, rightly so. And and that's that's one of the challenges, I guess, when you start thinking about imagery intelligence and geospatial intelligence and how it gets processed. At least at least how it's been done up to this point. Um, it, there's some pretty high end tools and software that that gets employed, and not everyone is comfortable doing that. And so, yeah, you're you're kind of limiting the, the, the scope of people who can actually take this and make sense of it. And and that's something that, you know, we're hoping
2: changes as time goes by. And what do you think about, I would think that that might open it up. I mean, sorry, this this shows about professional online research. We have a lot of people um, doing intelligence and evidence gathering, but it would seem that maybe other industries can benefit from GEOINT as we go into the future. Would that make sense?
1: Yes, and that, that's something I am quite passionate about um, you know national security partners and customers have have basically kept the, the geospatial intelligence industry moving along here for a number of decades um, you know to this day the US government is the largest you know consumer of geospatial intelligence that's produced in, in commercial venues uh, in the world and that probably won't change anytime soon. Yeah. But it's important for the industry as a whole to kind of, you know, basically diversify its, its dependence on, you know, one or two customers. And, and so tapping into some of the other industries out there that can benefit from it. And what we were just describing here, um, you know, using the near-infrared band and, and <clears throat> the, the NDVI index uh, to look at plant health, I mean, that has dramatic implications what can be done for, for agriculture. Uh, and commodities and predicting what's, what's happening and going to happen going forward. So, yeah.
0: What about in, in terms of like uh, natural disasters, things of that nature? How does GEOINT help in, um, in, in, uh, in, um, I guess, resolving or, uh, or bringing light to natural disasters and helping people after these events?
1: GEOINT has, has played a critical role uh, in, in, you know, supporting first responders, I guess getting people informed as as these hazards and, and events are happening literally anywhere in the world. Um, you know, within minutes, you can have a satellite overhead, task it, image what's what's down there. Um, you know, what comes to mind, fortunately, Lebanon, uh, a handful of years ago, right at the port, there was a major explosion and uh, end of the day, it turned out it was, Fertilizer, you know, stored not in a safe condition. And whatever happened, it blew up and, and the shockwave was immense and buildings were destroyed for, for many hundreds of meters around. Um, getting a sense of what what the extent of all that was, understanding who was impacted, the populations and and where to start placing people who are going to come in and, and, and do some some good work. Hopefully um, that lot of that was driven by geospatial intelligence. I mean, it, it was obvious that you know the, the the cone of explosion was here, and and so people that you know needed to help should be here, here, and here. Um, and then you can start to draw on other other capabilities and resources to refine you know that that impact. Um, there's so many examples where you can talk about natural disasters from earthquakes to to fires. Um, you know Australia, it seems every year you get to see satellite images of of you know just huge areas uh, being consumed by. By fire and it's just tragic and again scoping that and seeing it in real time geospatial intelligence is it has very few peers i mean i I can't think of another way to do it as efficiently as geospatial intelligence does
0: yeah i remember that event very well and i and another geowint aspect a lot of people probably don't think about is terrestrial imagery i mean if you think about that event there was a lot of it that was captured through social media, which people had filmed and uploaded. And if you geolocate that, it's essentially spatially referenced and temporally referenced. So you could use that to help zero in on exactly where the people needed their support as well. So speaking of which, in terms of uh, open source intelligence and Geoint and fusing them together, give me a sense of what is publicly available like, we could talk a little bit about Landsat, right? Obviously, a, uh, a, a government-funded, uh, remote-sensed uh, Earth observation satellite. Uh, and then talk a little bit about what's available for, you know, commercial, commercially available information, the Black Skies um, and uh, other uh, organizations like that.
1: Yeah, no, so... The... <laughs> These different sources of of satellite imagery or geoent, um, you you do have systems that have been on orbit in some way way shape or form for decades, such as Landsat, um, and it's proved critical again to to do some change detection. I mean, think of like high latitude polar regions and seeing the ice melt and assessing you know what did it look like in 1984, what does it look like in 2014, what does it look like today. You could see those events over time and again it's it i like to say that the imagery doesn't lie um there's certainly occasions when you know you get curveballs thrown at you but um when you see something at that scale happening over decades um from from space it can be very impactful um so yeah the major the major constellations that, that you know are out there available uh, publicly include landsat which is owned and operated by the U.S. government. Um, European Space Agency has has a constellation of satellites <clears throat> um, called Sentinel, and they include, you know, both optical, um, synthetic aperture radar, and then uh, some other, you know, multispectral uh, sensors. And they run run the gamut. You again talk about the electromagnetic spectrum. It, we're we're seeing more and more and more of that spectrum covered by publicly available uh, imaging systems. And then another uh, important <clears throat> contributor to to that publicly available information uh, include the likes of, of JAXA or the Japanese Space Agency, uh, with assets that you know have been basically put up in in tandem to to complement uh, what both the U.S. and Europe are doing. And there are, are other nation states such as Brazil and India and China that that have constellations that are are out and and available. Um, data qualities are you know not always consistent from, from platform to platform. Um, but if you stay within a, a, a single platform uh, over the years, it, it should be relatively good to, to do your compare and contrast and your change detection there. Uh, all that is really, I think, fostered uh, an ecosystem of, of analysis and, and people who are energized by having access to, to this data from space where there was enough energy, I guess, to, to justify a commercial service. Um, and then you saw in the 1990s that really start to crescendo up uh, here in the U.S., as well as Europe, uh, commercial sensors taking orbit. Primarily in the early days, it was optical, but you had some synthetic aperture radar systems, most notably from um, from Canada. And then as the years ensued, so now we're, you know, early 2000s, mid-2000s, you had a couple of organizations in the U.S. that were, were really kind of, you know charging ahead and that would have been digital globe and goi um yeah. and again not far behind them were, were was airbus in <laughs> in europe um and the us government was was certainly making its presence known large you know multi-year contracts and the hundreds of millions of dollars and and that was enough to really kind of plant the seeds and and then you know water it and see this this industry grow Um, Things got tremendously exciting here probably within about the last decade when the size of the satellites was really brought down. Um, So you suddenly had microsatellites, nanosatellites, um, satellites that are roughly the size of a dorm refrigerator, uh, even down to the size of a loaf of bread now. And they're they're still quite capable. Um, you know the, the components and hardware that you had to have on, <clears throat> on your satellite back in 1990 are very different than what you need to have in 2023, and it, it's it's been an explosion. I mean it, it's an exponential increase in the volume of data, the number of of Earth observation satellites. Uh, it, it continues to go up literally every month and uh, we're we're at a really I think point important point of inflection for for the geo industry and and those commercially available sources that I was telling you I mean again back to the companies kind of moving along competing it's it's mushroomed you now have you know many others the planets the black skies um, the capellas the umbras uh, I, I don't want to leave anyone out but i'm I have to because the list would go on on and on. And you also see um you know different nation states getting involved at this point so you know the us is is still i'd say very much i don't want to say in the lead um but moving forward with others trying to keep up and um yeah that that volume of data creates a new challenge for everyone uh the fact that there just aren't enough eyeballs to look at all the imagery every day and so you know, you need to to start automating and and leveraging things like machine learning and artificial intelligence so you can scale analysis uh, to the point where, you know, you're driving insights rapidly and quickly and leaving no pixel left behind.
2: (laughs) One thing uh, you'd mentioned, you both have mentioned a couple of times, I think you've referred to optical versus synthetic aperture types of, what's the difference between those two? or what are they? Let's start with what are they for, and then how do they differ?
1: Yeah, no, Jeff, that, that's great to kind of you know focus on that a bit. So we've referenced the electromagnetic spectrum. And mm. within that, there's a, a, a tiny sliver, which is visible light. That's what we can all see. And so when we have our phones on our cameras and whatnot, we take, take pictures, that's what we're looking at, that spectrum of light. And so, a lot of imaging systems uh, certainly cover those bands of light, and when the images come down from space and we look at them, it, it's all very you know normal and natural looking in many cases. But there's other bands of light that aren't visible to, to our naked eye, and so if you have a sensor that can kind of interpret it, see it, um, that is is very helpful. And now you're suddenly branching out, and there are you know there are signatures that you can see in different bands of light relative to one another. Um, synthetic aperture radar is is also part of the electromagnetic spectrum it's sar for short um and that's that's a sensor that is is active in that there's energy that it's beaming down from the sensor to a surface on on the earth and then it's being reflected back up all this happens at the speed of light because it's in the electromagnetic spectrum but it's a radio frequency and when that data comes back. Um, a lot of math happens behind the scenes. But basically, you get a, a 3d rendering of what's on the earth, the surface of the earth, at any given point. So you can see objects and hills and terrain. Um, it's, it's, if you look at the image, you know, you, you may be like, that's not very interesting. But it really is quite interesting when you're a, a geoint enthusiast, because the amount of data that that's behind the scenes is right. is telling you a lot.
0: You know, one of the things that I appreciated about SAR is that, uh, since it is an active sensor, it can be used at night. A lot of our adversaries will typically recognize that our electro-optical imagery is flown between you know ten and two, so they tend to keep their activities in the af- late afternoons or in the evenings. But using radar, we, we can uh, easily see those activities, as well as being an all-weather. Uh, sensor. So specifically in the uh, in the equatorial bands of the world where the cloud cover is almost persistent, you could use radar imagery and it can penetrate that and you can see objects on the ground.
2: You know, we were talking about some different industries and all this technology that's up in space now. Um, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about your work now at TerraCover and what, you, what you're doing there and, and what the company's all about?
1: Yeah, TerraCover is is really a cool company. Um, We spun it out from the University of Minnesota a handful of years ago. And I'm not a product of the university. I'm just a a friend of the university. But my co-founder is a product of the university. So um, we effectively now have an umbilical cord back to to the university and and resources are are available to us for a number of, of different initiatives. But our focus is generating what we term water intelligence. So freshwater resources, think lakes, rivers, reservoirs, um, and you know, the use cases are, are literally endless because water is so important to so many different facets of life um, and industry and, and whatnot. So we're, we're in the early stages, but certainly getting some good traction and headway, and we're very, uh, very optimistic about what the future holds.
0: I wanna talk a little bit more about some of the changing technology that's, that's coming our way. We talked a little bit about SAR, big fan of it, MSI for multispectral. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to see a lot more hyperspectral discussions in, in the past few months. Uh, specifically, I saw the uh, National Reconnaissance Office just uh, kicked off a new campaign or a program with some of the commercial satellite providers to procure hyperspectral imagery. Um, why? Why should we care? What is hyperspectral imagery, and uh, what what are some of the applications?
1: Yeah, so hyperspectral. I mean, if we just break the term down, um, you're you're looking at a high, the electromagnetic spectrum, but at a hyper scale, like you're looking at hundreds or thousands of bands simultaneously. So you have to have a great sensor to do that, and the the data behind it that you're you're actually pulling onto. To your uh, spacecraft is significant and that i don't want to say has well i will say it it's slowed um it slowed the ability of, of that industry to I'll just say the hyperspectral commercial world um space imaging world to to move as quickly as some people would like um because of those data volumes but Where we're at today, um, you know, the new infrastructures that are are emerging, you know, for communicating with your satellite, once you have the data on the ground, how it gets processed and and analyzed, a lot of the automation that's out there now is allowing us to really get our hands around a a hyperspectral data cube is what it comes down to. Um, It's more than an image. Like it's literally like hundreds or thousands of images each each time the sensor is capturing all of that light. And you start imagining what, you know, pull the thread here. What, what does that mean? What is the use case? Um, if you can have a signature for a particular type of, of, you know, material or chemical on the surface of the earth in a certain band of light or light bands of light, it has that signature and it can be nothing else. Like it's so empirical and irrefutable. And now you put that on a spaceborne uh, sensor and, and you're able to detect these objects, you know, with with that high level of, of confidence um it's truly a game changer i mean you we, we could run for hours thinking of, of of the possibilities here and how that's going to be used and leveraged but it's really i'd say wise of the us government to uh be supporting those commercial operators who are, are getting these uh hyperspectral sensors on orbit
0: so i'm a little nervous because as a classically trained cartographer who my photo interpretation skills could essentially be replaced by a hyperspectral image who could identify virtually everything on the ground. And that means that all of the foundational geography could be captured through AI. Is that uh, unheard of, do you think?
1: No, there's certainly um, large features and objects on the earth that, that are often manually derived by, by analysts sitting you know at a computer looking at an image making their best assessment that this is what i'm looking at in that again uh, optical image the 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 bands of light that are visible to us and now when you suddenly throw this this added information in there that again it becomes irrefutable that that is that what that object is um, i don't know that it's going to blow all those analysts you know to the side and and be its its own entity going forward i think it'll be quite complimentary um, those individuals, you know, who have been, you know, practicing this tradecraft for a number of years, they'll just have another tool in their tool belt.
0: There you go. What, what, what do you think about this, this human and machine teaming concept? And, uh, do, do you think that, uh, that plays a role in the future?
1: Yeah, no, Tom, I, am glad you asked that question because human machine teaming, I, it's at the core of everything we're doing at TerraCover and it, needs to be at the core of, of anyone who is embracing artificial intelligence or machine learning, uh, when applying that to just say, geospatial intelligence or geo it once you take a person out, like you, sure, people will tell you, or, or machines will tell you something much quicker than a, a person can, but there's the ability of a human brain to really contextualize something, um, Attribute pieces that maybe, you know, just aren't in the data stack and, and that's, that's going to be a high risk to take that, that element out. So human machine teaming HMT is critical going forward. And, you know, if you go back through history, I'm, I'm, I love my, my history studies, um, medieval ages, and I, I kind of use this as, as a metaphor of, of where Earth observation is today and where it could go. Um, middle ages, you know, not many people could read or write, people were illiterate as a whole. Those that did have the ability to read and write typically, at least in, in, you know, the Western Occidental world, um, were part of the church. And so, you know, all the written scriptures, interpreting that and telling, you know, the populace, this is what you should and shouldn't be doing that, that gave an added edge, you know, more power, so to speak to, to those who could read and write that's kind of where we're at today with with earth observation um you have all this data out there that and it's it's going up exponentially as more satellites take orbit there's just not enough people to really interpret it and understand it um so you know the the geo literacy rate is very low when you look at humanity across the board and that's that's a problem potentially and so being able to automate workflows and scale out, you know, things that, that people are doing day in and day out, I think it, it gives, it increases awareness and gives other people who are maybe not geo-savvy, geo-literate, the ability to tap in and, and, and use this data. Um, and that at the core, again, it you, fundamentally, it's human-machine teaming. Um, facilitating that going forward, that's, that's really important for, for this industry and for you know, national security partners included to to recognize that.
0: Mm, well said, well said. Um, thanks for a trip down memory lane, man. I really miss these conversations for sure.
2: Yeah, no, pleasure right here as well, Tom, thanks. Thanks to our guest Mark Knapp for joining us today, as well as my co-host Tom K. If you like what you heard, you can view transcripts and other episode info on our website authenticate.com slash needle stack that's authentic with number eight.com slash needle and be sure to let us know what you thought of the show on twitter at needle pod and to like and subscribe wherever you're listening today we'll be back next week with more geo we'll see you then